0: Previously on Colors, the situation in South Sudan gets worse by the day. Well, as I speak to you now, there is a region, the northern region of South Sudan, is called Upper Nile region. Uh, there is an ongoing conflict right now, uh, and uh, local people there
1: reported that uh, about three thousand people were murdered there.
0: Abraham Awolich, one of the Lost Boys and co-founder of the People's Coalition for Civil Action joins us with the latest.
2: Coming up in this episode of Colors.
0: Something remarkable just happened in Oakland, California.
3: Here you have, as you mentioned, this daughter of refugees, a second generation um, Hmong uh, woman who was able to get elected to one of the biggest cities in California um, as mayor and in a city that doesn't really have a large Hmong population. So I sort of set out wanting to know how did she do
0: that? New York Times correspondent Amy Chin joins us with this amazing story.
2: That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions.
1: Segregation now and tomorrow and forever.
2: Fighting injustice.
1: I have a dream.
0: Conflict looming. Brutality exposed.
2: I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the
1: mic and make sure it sounds right, boys.
0: I'm uh, a citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma.
3: My name is Lara Capuano.
2: I am located in Rochester, New York, and I am white.
3: My name is John Yang. I'm Chinese American. I grew up in Chicago and was born in Taipei, Taiwan. My name is Aya Sadiq. I am Middle Eastern. I'm Palestinian. I'm
0: JJ Green. I'm black. And this is Colors. Sound right, boys. Oakland, California is getting a new mayor. And this new mayor is going to highlight the political rise of Hmong Americans. That's according to Amy Chin, a writer, reporter for the New York Times who wrote a brilliant story about Shang Tao. She's the daughter of refugees and will become the most prominent Hmong American politician when she leads that California city of 440,000 residents. Amy joins us on this program to discuss it. Amy. Thank you very much for joining us on Colors. You wrote an absolutely fascinating piece not long ago, um, and it's called Oakland's Next Mayor Highlights the Political Rise of Hmong Americans, and it's about Tao. She was the daughter of refugees. And what made this story so fascinating for me is the, the generational aspect of this and the way in which you put this we used to say on paper, but of course, this is a whole different time now, the way you put this story together. When you wrote the story, what what was going through your head? What were the elements that you wanted to share, you wanted us to get from the story that you wrote?
3: Thank you so much, Um, it's so nice to be with you. Um, Yeah, that's a good question. I think that, you know, one thing I didn't go into in the story is the local politics of Oakland and why she was elected. Um, but what I thought was really interesting was that, you know, the, you ha- here you have, as you mentioned, this daughter of refugees, the second generation um, Hmong uh, woman who was able to get elected to one of the biggest cities in California um, as mayor and in a city that doesn't really have a large Hmong population. So I sort of set out wanting to know how did she do that? Uh, I think that a lot of it has to do with local politics. You know, she's a pretty progressive candidate, has strong support from labor unions. But I was surprised as I kind of dug into it to learn that a lot of it was also because of this Hmong network nationwide that she was able to tap into. She herself is from... Uh, grew up in Stockton, California, which has a large Hmong population. But um, one thing that I was really interested to learn was that, you know, as part of her campaign, she even went to Minnesota and Wisconsin to do some campaign stops there to uh, talk to the Hmong community, to get support from them, to raise money. They ended up contributing one fifth of her um, campaign funds, uh, which I thought was really interesting. So, yeah, I really wanted to basically show how this group um, you know, the, the background of this community that really arrived in the U.S. relatively recently and how they've been able to make this mark politically in a pretty short amount of time.
0: That's the thing that sort of fascinated me, because I guess this is probably, what, since the 70s or whatever, um, maybe maybe a little earlier um, that this community mm-hmm. began, to, began its rise in this country. But um, so Oakland, let, let's kind of look at Oakland for a minute, because, you know, it wasn't, and I'll admit this, it wasn't until not too long ago that I realized the Oakland that we have today is not the same Oakland that I grew up with, which was back in the 70s, et cetera. Explain to us what Oakland is now.
3: I, I mean, I'm from the Bay Area. I grew up in the East Bay. Um, I can't say that I'm an expert in, in what, what, how Oakland is right now, but, um, you know, I think that she uh, uh, was able to beat um, her competitor by just a few hundred votes in a ranked choice election. Um, but Oakland is just a very diverse uh, place right now. I mean, I, I don't know. What was it like for you growing up in the, in the 70s?
0: Well, not I didn't grow up in Oakland, but I'm just oh, saying okay. I always knew, always thought that Oakland was, I knew that it was a diverse community, but I mm-hmm. hear now that it's a lot more affluent than it used to be mm-hmm. in that yeah. in those days is what I'm saying.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So- yeah, I mean, um, there are of course pockets of o- Oakland where you go into the neighborhoods, and and they're extremely wealthy. But you also have a city that's really grappling with um, rise in homelessness and also in violent crime. And so, uh, you know, some people sort of see her election as a reaction to um, Libby Shaft, the, the prede- her predecessors' uh, past policies.
0: So in your story, um, you highlighted, as you mentioned, you know, she went back to Minnesota and, you know, she sort of reached out to the nationwide community for support to help her. And so is that a thing? Is that a, is that a normal thing to your knowledge? And I know you're probably not a political expert either. I know I know you do <laughs> write about some of this sometimes, though, but is that normal to do?
3: You're right. I'm really not a political expert. I was based in Asia for the last decade. But um, from my understanding, it is normal. I mean, you know, you do often see candidates go outside of their jurisdictions to try to get support or fundraise. That that part is normal. And I think that even within the Hmong community, um, when you have candidates who are running in different areas, they will often go to places like Wisconsin and Minnesota to shore up support, because those are the places where you have the highest concentration in a small amount of space of Hmong people. And I think what's really interesting about the Hmong community is because they are relatively small, Um, you know, there's about 300,000 Hmong in the U.S., and that's among ethnic groups on the relatively smaller end. And so um, it's just a more tight-knit network Like the way that someone described it to me is that, you know, it's always sort of one or two degrees of separation. Um, so yeah. you're really able to kind of tap into that close-knit network.
0: Yeah, you know, another thing that you wrote about in your story that I thought was great, you talked about how they've improved their standing over the years. Some members of the, the you know, the early the, the early arrivers saved their money and, and bought homes and and they began their whole wealth-building process. And look what happens now. They have the, the mayor of Oakland. How do you think that's going, her election is going to impact Oakland uh, in the long term?
3: Well, I think that, you know, um, it's really interesting to this community is, the background of the community is really important to understand in the broader context. We know that they, basically the Hmong, they um, are, most of of the Hmong in the U.S. came from Laos. And in Laos, the U.S. was fighting, the CIA was fighting a secret war alongside what was happening in Vietnam. But the reason, because it was a secret war, a lot of the Hmong, when they eventually migrated to the U.S. as refugees, unlike the Vietnamese, people didn't really understand the role that they played there. And also many of them didn't come with very transferable skills because they were mostly agrarian farmers. And so they really started, even compared to Vietnamese refugees, they, the Hmong really started with nothing and it was really difficult for them to work their way up. It was just by dint of extreme hard work um, on, on the part of the first generation. And that's definitely the case for Shang Tao's parents. And she described when I interviewed her, you know, the sort of challenges that they face financially and otherwise um, when she was growing up in Stockton. And so I think that she comes into the office in Oakland with a really acute um, and personal understanding of what it is what a lot, many of these issues are. You know, at the time that she was describing to me um, how she gave birth at age 20 um, when she was homeless because she was in an abusive relationship and had left that abusive relationship. Um, and. You know, a lot of these issues that I think that she's dealing going to be dealing with as mayor of Oakland, she's experienced herself personally.
0: Yeah, that is a really remarkable uh, part of this story. So, um so I was going to ask you to tell me a little bit more about her personally, you know. <laughs> but you've you you've sort of started that process. But I want to ask a few more specific questions about her. Can you describe how she? Her, her personality, how you perceived her, when you were talking to her and interviewing her, what stood out the most to you about her?
3: Uh, I What stood out the most to me is, you know, she's only a few years older than me. She's 37. She's very personable, bubbly, easy to ch- chat with. Um, and I think she has clearly a very, she's very confident and also, I think, self-assured and and you know, willing to talk about her background, it feels like really openly in a way that um, you don't often see with uh, certain politicians. You know, it, it does. It feels like she's read she she's willing to get into the sort of downsides. She she re- really readily admits that her she didn't she grew up mostly outside of the Hmong community and has really only reconnected with that culture relatively recently. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that she is just of. This millennial sort of generation. That's really the sense that I got from her. And she's, you know, really uh, an up and coming politician.
0: So when you look at what took place in her situation, do you see opportunities uh, for this to happen in other places or is this a one off?
3: Oh, so definitely. I think that, I mean, one thing that didn't make it into the piece is that. Um, This her rise and the rise of the second generation among American politicians is also coinciding with a broader rise in politics, elected politics of Asian-Americans. Generally, Um, you are just seeing second generation Asian-Americans doing more in terms of running for elected office. Um, Their parents, it's this is a classic immigrant story. You know, Uh, their parents came here, worked really hard, put their heads down, didn't really get involved in politics, but their kids who were born in the U.S., now want to get involved. And so I think that we are going to see more and more people, both Hmong, Asian American, children of immigrants generally, getting more involved in elected politics for sure.
0: And when you look at the the racial situation in the US, um, you know, in the last three years, you know, almost it'll be three years in June, since George Floyd was was killed. Uh, And, you know, there was a lot of struggle in this country to come to grips with its—basically, it was a racial reckoning for the entire country. Unfortunately, Asian Americans, they suffered the brunt of some just very heinous activity that, you know, it, it existed before that, but we paid more attention to it as a country after this happened. and. I'm wondering, do you think that this her election and some of the other things that have taken place were partly a response to the state of race relations in the country when it comes to Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders and, you know, other people that fall under that that, the census designation?
3: I think so. I mean, you know, I only moved back to the U.S. relatively recently, but so I watched what was happening after George Floyd from abroad. And I think that it was so interesting to see this converse, these conversations and this racial reckoning happening from that point of view. Sometimes you talk to people, non-Americans, and they say, oh, Americans see everything through the lens of race. But I'm really proud, um, you know, that we're having these conversations that are often very difficult, very not always productive, but are necessary. And certainly with uh, everything that was happening with the AAPI community here, I mean, growing up myself in California, um, I never really would have identified so much as Asian American, or maybe it wasn't that strong of an identity. But I think in the last few years, you're really starting to see a coalescing of the Asian American identity and people starting to probe, what does it mean to be Asian? Um, And so I think that, yeah, Shane Tao, her election um, is a big, big part of that. And I think we're only going to start to see that identity grow stronger.
0: You know, I know that you're a reporter and I know I'm talking to you about your work. But you're a human being, too. And so am I. And I'm a reporter. (laughs) And I want to ask you this question. If you can't answer it and you're not comfortable with it, say so. I will apologize and we'll move sure, on. Sure. I just want to know, were you impacted by personally what has taken place in these last three years?
3: Of course. I mean, I am an American, even when you, and I feel that even more so when I'm not in America, um, you know, and so I was riveted and horrified and all the feelings about the conversations that were happening and what was happening back in the U S. Um, and certainly with, um, you know, the recognition of the violence and the microaggressions that were happening, especially against the Asian community, you know, I have relatives and parents and, um, friends in the, that community in the U S as well. And so of course you're going to worry about their safety when you hear about, what's happening. So um, the short answer
0: is, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, you're. thank you for answering the question, first of all, and you know, this is, it makes me wonder, you know, have we learned anything in this country, you know, from this because there was a lot of turmoil as you've mentioned, and you know, on Colors, we've covered this time and time again, but one of the things that really concerns me at this point is basically the fatigue factor, the ally fatigue that I have noticed people who were on board with, you know, helping to fix and right wrongs and this, that, and the other, a lot of those folks have gotten tired of it. And a lot of those folks have moved on. Uh, have you sensed any of that?
3: I think that, um, it, from you know, just from my perspective, I'm not an expert in these issues at all, but, you know, you always have the sort of high tide of initial kind of, fervor in the aftermath of some sort of moment but i feel like the conversation is still happening um, and it does feel like there's been between me too and george floyd a sort of paradigm shift in the way that people see certain issues and even as a journalist the way that i think about and approach certain issues as well and wanting to make sure that you know, as something as simple as am I representing all the voices that I should be representing in a story, um, That that is something that I think we're much more conscious of before yeah. than before.
0: Well, that's really good to hear. So I'm going to take this back to the Shang Tao story before we end here. Uh, and you, you wrote a lot of, as I mentioned before, you wrote a lot of uh, fantastic stuff in here that was eye opening. And you mentioned as well a couple of things that weren't in the story. Um are there things there still? Are there things still that you want to share about the story that's not in the piece that was written?
3: I think I would just go back to, um, you know, I think that this is so much uh, a story about the Hmong community and their specificity. But, you know, in when we're talking about identities and different communities, like this is also about. Asian Americans more generally and their rise and about immigrants more broadly as well. And so just sort of keeping that in mind that, um, you know, it is this specifically, you know, interesting story about the Hmong American community, but there's also so many other narratives going on at the same time, too. And um, unfortunately, can't capture all of that in one, one feature, but uh, it, 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 all of that is happening there.
0: Okay. And the last thing I'll ask you is... You know, as a journalist, we're always thinking about the next thing, always thinking ahead. And I know that you cover Asian, the Asian AAPI community, I guess, in Washington and across the country. You have something else going on that you're working on, you're thinking about, that you're looking at that that is of interest to you right now?
3: Yeah, I think that this year. We've already started talking about it, and I'm sure this is something that um, we know we'll all be talking a lot more about. This is a big year for the uh, community in terms of the affirmative action case in front of the Supreme Court. We're expecting a decision on that in the spring. And I think that, um, you know, uh, one thing that a lot of people who are very pro-affirmative action will say that um, Asians are being weaponized or used as a wedge um, against other uh, communities of color and that we should be more aware of that um, and fight back against that. And so, you know, we we have a conservative court. I think a lot of people can predict how they're going to rule on this case, but what does that mean? What what happens after that ruling? What does that mean for education in America? What does that mean for, um, you know, relations between communities of color as well?
0: Uh, That's something that I'm really paying attention to. Well, Amy Chin, national correspondent for The New York Times. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. This is a great story. Folks, you need to read this story and pay attention to what she does in terms of the next thing here, because I think a lot of us have lately been so focused on other stories around the world and, you know, certainly politics here in Washington but there are some things that are happening in this country and communities like Oakland that we can't miss. So thank you again, Amy Chin, and uh, we appreciate the time you you spent with us today.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's great.
0: Stay tuned for some thoughts about race in America and details about our next guest.
2: You're listening to Colors. I'm John Boyd, a black male from
1: uh, Boateng, Virginia. It appears as though in the Black community, the word Black farmer has such a bad taste because of slavery, Mm -hmm. because of the bad history with uh, Blacks and and the South and sharecropping, all of these things. Uh, Yes, those things happen, but we are still Black farmers that own their farms. uh, And uh, Granddad Thomas would say, Land ownership is the next best thing to freedom. And when you throw the plow in the ground and you smell the ground, he said it's the smell of heaven. Every step you take, every step you make requires land ownership. You can either own some of God's country or you can be trespassing and walk on somebody else's. Mm. Those are the choices that we have. And especially as blacks in this country, if we can afford a new Mercedes Benz, we can afford five acres in the country go out and buy some land. And I believe that we can do better. And I wanna change the perception of uh, farming and uh, agribusiness. I want more blacks to start looking at taking jobs in some of these agribusiness companies where we were totally absent. And I want us to start buying some of these companies, especially these athletes that can afford them to start buying some of these agriculture companies.
2: This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.
0: If you have any questions or comments about Colors, send us an email. You can reach us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. My name is John Echohawk. I'm uh, a citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma.
3: My name is Lara Capuano. I am located in Rochester, New York, and I am white. My name is John Yang. I'm Chinese American. I grew up in Chicago and was born in Taipei, Taiwan. My name is Aya Sadik.
2: I am Middle Eastern. I'm Palestinian.
0: I'm JJ Green. I'm Black. And this is Colors.
2: Coming up in our next episode of Colors...
0: I'm Mitchell Miller, and I'm white. I've known Mitchell Miller for almost 20 years. He's a fellow journalist and a darn good one. But our paths almost crossed years before. He's going to talk to us about that, and he's also going to talk about his family's path into America and where he grew up. I grew up in a white suburb of Michigan that I've half-jokingly called Wonder Bread Land. I've now lived a long time in DC, where I'm happy to say our daughter has grown up in a much more diverse environment. I have no regrets about where I lived as a kid, but my life is richer for having lived in the district. And yes, I still remember the magic of going to my job downtown and hearing the alluring sound of DC's own go-go music for the first time.
2: That's coming up in our next episode of Colors.
0: Time to go. And as we do, we want to say thank you to the creator. Hillary Howard, Mike Chikaitis, Allison McGinley, Jennifer Seelig, Pierre Thomas, Stephen Portnoy, Joel Otsley, Rob Stallworth, Peter Masurlian, Jasmine Orsted, Melissa Howell, Thomas Warren, Peggy Byard, Micheline Bowman, Anna Smith, Amy Cho, Roz Whitaker, Heck, Ernie Green, Angeli Chong, and the Iroquois Nation. And for the Music, Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane. And most of all, thank you for listening. And just remember, keep talking to each other. And just as important, keep listening to each other.
2: You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast DC, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America.